All Souls Forum is a public forum dealing with significant issues, especially those that involve ethical values of the contemporary world and that promote critical thinking. It is a production of the All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church at 4501 Walnut Street in Kansas City, Missouri. Good morning, All Souls Forum audience. I'm Rita Norton, longtime All Souls Forum committee member. Although times and locations have changed since the first All Souls Forum in 1943, the Forum's mission is still to afford a platform for the discussion of significant issues, especially those which involve ethical values in the contemporary world. UMKC professor of political science, Dr. Max Skidmore, is here this morning to discuss the anti-abortion movement, the distortion of the term pro-life, the rampant campaign to use government power to force women to carry unwanted pregnancies to term, and the recent attempt to add anti-abortion dogma to the Kansas state constitution. Dr. Skidmore. Thank you, Rita. Those of you who have heard me before um, may recognize that I usually begin with a bit of humor. But to be candid, I can't find any humor in today's misogynistic atmosphere. Three months ago, on the 24th of June, the majority members of the Supreme Court of the United States thrust aside stereotypes distorted history, misread the United States Constitution, eliminated a right that had been recognized officially for half a century, arrogantly stripped women of their personal autonomy, and handed down a decision that appears to bear a startling similarity to the worst decision in its history, Dred Scott versus Sanford in 1857. I apologize for pulling my punches. Dred Scott abrasively declared that people of African descent, whether enslaved or free, had no rights that the white population was obligated to recognize and could never acquire them. Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization applied reasoning similar to that from Dred Scott to America's women. The decision's author, Justice Alito, was similarly abrasive in the language of his written text, dismissing women's rights, much as Chief Justice Taney had dismissed any notion of rights for black people. Alito's decision made it plain that women in America have no rights regarding their reproductive outcomes. They have no bodily autonomy. And if they live in backward states, their reproduction decisions will always be imposed upon them by the government's of those states. And if Republicans gain control again of the national government, we have it from no less an authority than Sen Senator Lindsey Graham, they now are free to abolish women's reproductive rights nationally. If this seems rhetorically extreme, reflection will demonstrate that it isn't at all. It's the court's decision that's extreme. Alito's abrasiveness was not limited to his language in the decision. Speaking in Rome, he condemned Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau and French President Macron for having spoken of the retrograde, retrograde character of the decision. He even said that former Prime Minister of the UK 
who called the decision a backward step in being forced to resign, had paid the price. Well, that presumably was a joke, but one with a barb reflecting anything other than a judicial temperament. CNN host Fareed Zakaria slammed the Supreme Court and slammed Justice Alito for what he called a disgusting and scandalous speech. He pointed out that members of the court at least are supposed to conduct themselves in a way that's above politics. What Alito did, he said, was act like a political commentator and not a particularly good one at that. He said, in fact, that Alito looks like an idiot. The court already had demonstrated its complete politicization. In other words, a change of personnel can result in a complete reversal of policy. To borrow a phrase from Justice Barrett, who incorrectly denied that it applied to the court, it's clear that the United States Supreme Court had indeed, has indeed, come to be dominated by political hacks. The decision's author, Justice Alito, was ignorant of relevant history, guilty of willfully disregarding facts that contradict his decision. He wrote that abortion had always been considered criminal, and therefore it was not something the Constitution protected. Alito's evidence consisted of a single criminal case that was prosecuted in 1652 in the Catholic colony of Maryland. He then jumped ahead to laws that states enacted mostly in the mid to late 19th century to criminalize abortion. It's telling that his examination of history cited the 17th century and the 19th century, when the Constitution itself was a product of the 18th century. At the time of the founding, abortion was largely a private matter, not a cause for public concern, nor was abortion a criminal act. In a sensational case from the era, neither Thomas Jefferson, John Marshall, nor Patrick Henry advocated prosecution for a woman who very likely had had an abortion. The case involved a trial for the murder of a newborn, but it became clear that the body was not from a newborn, it was from an abortion. Therefore, it didn't result from the murder of an infant, and there was nothing to prosecute. Now, the entire line of reasoning that Alito employed should have been precluded by the clear language of the Ninth Amendment. And yet five of his colleague justices, including the chief, signed on to the, his defective argument. Alito wrote that the Constitution makes no reference to abortion. The amendment specifically provides that the fact that the Constitution does not explicitly mention a right cannot be used to justify the conclusion that there is no such right. That's the Ninth Amendment. Regardless of that amendment, though, the court should be well advised to be cautious regarding any line of reasoning that relies on the Constitution's silence on an issue. There is no mention in the Constitution of the very act that gives the court its power, judicial review. It's not mentioned in the Constitution. Regarding harm to society, consider the recent outrage. Two days before the Dobbs decision, a mother reported to Children's Services in an Ohio county that her 10-year-old daughter was pregnant. Under Ohio's draconian forced birth restrictions, the child was not eligible for an abortion. She was taken to Indiana, where on June 30th, Dr. Caitlin Bernard mercifully performed a legal abortion protecting the pregnant child. The reaction 
from conservatives to this horrific situation could have been predicted, and it was not sympathy for the abused child. Ohio's Republican General Dave Yost told Fox News, of course, that there was not a whisper of evidence that there recently had been the rape of a 10-year-old in Ohio. Every day that passes, he said, without verification makes it more likely that the story is a fabrication. Ohio Republicans hinted darkly that the child may have been promiscuous. No one should miss the snide suggestion here condemning this little girl, this child, as likely a brazen little hussy who deserves what she gets. Noted right-wing extremist Ohio U.S. Representative Jim Jordan tweeted, Another lie. Anyone surprised? Indiana's Republican Attorney General Todd Rokita did open investigation. But it was into Dr. Bernard's record, not what had happened to the little girl. And what was Indiana legislature's response? Immediately, it passed an anti-abortion statute with hysterical haste. Essentially, it forbids little. It forbids abortion in the state. Now, little girls, such as the one in question, will have to con travel considerably further than Indiana, farther than Indiana, and may be well may well be forced as children to bear their own children. And that, of course, was the intention of the ideologues in the legislature. And a number of anti-abortion activists around the country made comments such as saying the ten-year-old would be, have been blessed to have born her child, or that pregnant children were the results of a gift from God, I suspect the cause of something different. And these outrageous comments are far from rare from forced birth fanatics. The first direct public reaction to the Dobbs decision came on August 2nd in the conservative Midwestern state in which I live, Kansas. The Kansas Supreme Court in 2019 had declared the state's constitution guaranteed life and liberty, and that those rights obviously included a woman's right to make decisions regarding her own body. The state could regulate the procedure. For example, Kansas continued to ban abortions generally past 22 weeks, but they couldn't ban the procedure. And Republicans, of course, were outraged, as were religious anti-abortion conservatives. They thundered that the liberal can, uh, the liberal court was out of touch with Kansas values. Well, we showed them <laughs> Kansas values. Kansans for Life poured millions of dollars into a campaign to amend the state's constitution to remove the right to abortion. And in a move that would have impressed George Orwell, they christened, and the pun is intended, they christened their proposal the Value Them Both Amendment, that is, value the pregnant woman and the potential child. Now, only in an Orwellian nightmare would forcing a woman to carry an unwanted pregnancy to birth be considered valuing that woman. Republicans had placed the amendment on the ballot of the state's primary election, hoping to increase the vote in favor, because um, primary elections generally bring out only uh, political activists. And Republican, uh, Kansas is such a Republican state that they counted on that fact as uh, uh, working in favor of the amendment. And the only polling that had been conducted and released on that amendment uh, had taken note of the state's conservatism, and it projected that the amendment would pass. 
and even the more optimistic supporters of reproductive rights seem to believe that either way the vote would be very close. And everyone was wrong. People were outraged by Dobbs. The no vote prevailed in both urban and rural areas. About 59% of the vote was to reject the amendment. Republicans were so shocked that they failed even to charge that the election had been stolen, which is what they what they usually do when they lose. But they did offer various complaints. Oh, well, they said the ballot language was confusing, despite having written that language themselves. The general tone of much of the conservative reaction was that the proposed amendment hadn't gone far enough. That's usually a conservative approach when their solutions don't work. And I've always believed that if, if you're in a hole to get out, you quit digging. And what conservatives tend to do when they're in a hole is ask for a power shovel. The Kansas vote, though, did alert the more perceptive Republicans nationally that maybe, just maybe, abortion may not be a winning issue for them after all. Women vote. Oh. And women seem clearly to be unwilling to accept government power over the decisions regarding their own bodies. Fancy that. Large numbers of enlightened men agreed. Until well into the 19th century, there were no restrictions on abortion in the United States, nor was there any stigma attached to ending a pregnancy before term. The 1792 case mentioned above is a case in point. Abortion as a rule, in fact, didn't even apply uh, to early termination. It meant ending a pregnancy after quickening. And quickening was uh, the sign of first movement, which usually around, it's around the 15th or 16th week. The Roman Catholic Church itself tended, they deny this now, many of them do, but they tended not to condemn abortion before that point. Their argument was that a human soul enters the fetus late in a pregnancy. Even today, as Gary Wills points out, Although the church fervently condemns abortion, even the church does not argue that scriptures forbid it. The church argues, rather, that it violates natural law. Now, Gary Wills is a superb scholar, a classical scholar, and also a staunch Catholic. And he's fully familiar with the thought on natural law, far more than I would submit than the bishops are. And he has written that the bishops, by forbidding abortion, are simply wrong on the issue, even under Catholic doctrine. But as the 19th century progressed, there came to be efforts to curb the practice. This came about as there was a gradual relaxation of restriction on women. It's difficult to recognize how radical women leaving the home unescorted was at the time. About a half century before then, Thomas Jefferson reflected on the prevailing attitude of the time when he wrote to Samuel Kershaw. This is a letter from 1816, after he was president, that women shouldn't vote, because to do so would cause them, quote, to mix promiscuously in the public meetings of men, end quote, and that would lead, he said, to deprivation of morals and, think about this, ambiguity of issue. 
when it would be difficult to find an expression more demeaning to women than Jefferson's comment that their children, their issue, would be of uncertain parentage unless they, the women, were constantly confined to the home or otherwise carefully supervised. Opposition to abortion was part of a misogynist backlash that took place when women began to exercise new freedoms. And to complicate the issue, physicians began to organize as a profession, and they faced a lot of uh, uh, economic competition from midwives and others who performed abortions, and some of them unskilled and unpracticed, and they were right that some of them were, were dangerous. Uh, but they sought to eliminate the procedure entirely. And by the dawn of the 20th century, laws forbidding abortion had emerged across the United States. And it's so obvious that it may be mis it may be overlooked that men have always determined the substance of policy regarding abortion, not women. In the event that the misogyny might not be glaringly evident, law professor Aaron Tang made it plain recently in a Washington Post op-ed. He noted that the all-male medical lobby as it campaigned against abortion in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, argued that a woman should not be permitted to judge for herself in such a matter because women are prone to derangement. Now note the logic here. Pregnant women were fully capable of being mothers, but not of deciding whether to become mothers. As the century progressed, some states began to weaken their restrictions. Then in 1973, January 22nd to be exact, came the landmark Roe v. Wade decision. The court declared there could be no restrictions on abortion in the first trimester. In the second trimester, states could apply some restrictions, but maternal health had to have priority. In the third trimester, states could apply restrictions as they wanted, except that they had to permit abortion in cases in which reasonable medical judgment indicate, indicated that it was essential for maternal health. Even though the early 20th century had seen states adopt severe restrictions on abortion, though, it wasn't generally prominent in political discourse. The most strident voices against abortion were Catholic. Protestants generally avoided the subject, or else they supported abortion. They considered it generally to be a Catholic issue. They didn't want to mess with it. And that changed when television evangelism emerged. It created huge audiences and enormous fortunes. Also, when politics began to overwhelm religion among fundamentalist evangelicals. In general, American fundamentalist evangelicals had been likely to follow the biblical admonition to separate from the world, and thus had, not, had often been not active politically. And if they voted, they were more likely to support the New Deal and later Democratic administrations for because of Democratic economic policies. But in the 70s and 80s, there came what might be termed a new great awakening that revolved around the Calvinist teachings of one Francis Schaeffer and his son Frank. They were conservative Presbyterians who had returned to the U.S. after years of uh, conducting Labre, a retreat in Switzerland, and Schaeffer himself had been largely apolitical. His new stance reflected some of the philosophy of Russus John Rushduni. R.J. Rushduni was a 20th century Christian philosopher and the most extreme of the prominent fundamentalist evangelicals. 
He combined a quasi-anarchist economics with a stark theocracy and was the father of dominionism or reconstructionism. Uh, you may have heard of Christian reconstructionism. Uh, his, he called for a Christian United States that would subdue the world. His agenda also included a huge expansion of the death penalty. Capital offenses would include not only those of today, but also adultery, uh, if committed by a woman, blasphemy, homosexuality, the practice of astrology, incest, the striking of a parent, or in the case of women, unchastity before marriage. These leaders who followed Rushduni may to some extent have remained disciples despite his, the harshness of his theology, which they tended to minimize. Nevertheless, uh, Frank Schaefer, who, has, who was largely responsible for convincing his father to make abortion an issue, and now has uh, been shocked at what he accomplished and has completely uh, turned against it, um, he quotes his father as saying that um, he really thought Rushduni to be clinically insane, uh, which seems to be a rather reasonable interpretation uh, for someone who would urge that children be put to death if they disrespected their parents. Uh, Frank writes that he and his father were the major force encouraging American fundamentalist uh, evangelical leaders to become politically active. Uh, he described the making with his father of a new Christian documentary titled How Should We Then Live? a film that became a huge success with the burgeoning religious right in America. He hadn't wanted, his father hadn't wanted to include abortion in the film, but he talked him into it. And he said, if it hadn't been for me, dad's reputation as an evangelical scholar would have remained intact. As it was, my absolutist youthful commitment to the pro-life cause goaded my father into taking political positions more extreme than came naturally to him. And the elder Schaefer said he didn't want to be identified with some Catholic issue, but he gave in. They changed the documentary, and with it, they changed history. In 1977, 34 years after Francis Schaefer began his ministry, the film appeared on the market, and it was a sensation. After nearly a half century, it still remains available and in use. Frank now admits with regret that the group that he and his father worked with influenced so strongly. Such evangelical fundamentalist luminaries as Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, Franklin Graham, James Dobson, and John Hagee were a hate America group, and that he and his father crossed the line into open sedition. They became, the Schaefers became overtly political, and therefore were eager to spread their influence beyond explicitly religious circles. In the 1980s, 70s, and 80s, they met frequently with such powerful political figures as Ronald Reagan. George H.W. Bush, Gerald Ford, Jack Kemp, who was a Republican nominee for vice president in 1996, and former Surgeon General C. Everett Koop. Frank said that the evangelical anti-abortion movement that Dad Koop and I helped create seduced the Republican Party. Before the Schaefers, Schaefers Frank said, speaking of politicians, nobody paid any attention to Jesus until Kemp, Koop, and Reagan realized they could pry off Catholics and evangelical votes from the Democratic Party. As it is now, he said, religion in America has become big-time politics.
And remember, all that was decades ago. The Trump phenomenon was in the you know, phenomenon was in the distant future when it ex when it exploded on the scene. Though it overshadowed even the Republican Party's recent patron saint, Ronald Reagan. Certainly, Frank Schaefer rejected and now regrets his past and his role in inciting political extremism in America. And what happened to him was that he became increasingly uncomfortable not only with what he was doing, but with the people with whom he was associating. He came to recognize that he was unleashing deadly forces. Among the most extreme were Rush Dooney's Christian Reconstructionists. And he noted the violence inherent in the anti-abortion movement and the anti-government rhetoric on the right that at least flirts with revolution and secession, and now it does more than flirt with it. It's, it's openly accepted. Regardless of the flag-waving veneer of patriotism, there was a stark hatred for America, for democracy, and for the American political system. He was startled to recognize that in the land he and his followers hoped to create, with his own emphasis on aesthetics and film and so forth, he would be among the first to be eliminated. And the violent attempt by Trump followers on January 6th to halt the counting of electoral votes was a clear attack on America's system that places voters at the center of public policy. The insurrection attempt and the current advocacy of voter suppression that now is quite open among Republicans is the flowering of those seditionist seeds planted by fundamentalist evangelicals decades ago and by anti-abortionists in general. They opposed democracy then and are even more opposed to it today. And Schaefer, Frank Schaefer recognized a core influence that he perceived in all fundamentalisms of the world, whether Jewish, Islamic, Christian, or some other. It's a hatred of women and of sex, all under the guiding motivation of fear. And I expand that not only to religious fundamentalisms, but to fundamentalisms in general, by which I mean excessive literalism. Um, fundamentalism in economics, fundamentalism in constitutional interpretation, fundamentalism in religion, and so forth. We now are at a junction. The established order in this country faces a large armed and vicious minority, sharing a commitment to violence and openly advocating the elimination of democratic procedures. They flirt with secession. They're held together by a mutual misogynistic horror regarding abortion, leading them to delusions of Democrats as being literally agents of Satan. I want to look very quickly now at the arguments against abortion. And the first thing that we should consider is language. Those who control or strongly influence the way people speak influence the way people think, and they have a major advantage that's difficult for others to overcome or even to recognize. And the entire federal judiciary, not merely the Supreme Court, suffers from decades of extremist appointments by conservative presidents. The Washington Post this morning has an editorial on the need for, for um, uh, reforming the court, and absolutely they're right. But they undercut their own position by saying, but we can't involve, we can't uh, support packing the court. The court is packed. It's already packed. What we need to do is add seats to the court to unpack it. But when you adopt the language of the opponents, 
you have not only undercut your own position, but you have made it untenable. Conservatives now are openly attempting to employ measures to thwart the will of the people by empowering state legislatures to cancel votes if they don't like them. Pro-life is another salient example. Everyone favors life in general. But the anti-abortion movement has appropriated a general term and applied it to a quite narrow subject. Pro-life has become a synonym for anti-abortion. A clever sleight of tongue has become a sleight of mind. A far more accurate term would be forced birthers. The term pro-life never brings to mind opposition to capital punishment. It does not suggest opposition to war or to the widespread availability of instruments of war such as rapid-fire, high-capacity firearms that are designed to kill human beings and only to kill human beings. Nor does it apply to support for universal provision of life-saving health care or adequate food and shelter. The use of the word kill when applied to abortion is intended to generate resistance. Killing sounds bad, it sounds evil, but every every creature on earth kills. Even vegans kill, they kill plants to eat them. And when applied to abortion, it, it literally means different things depending on timing. The more distant the birth, the less force the term should have. Every cell in your body is alive. And if you lance a boil, you're, you're killing human cells. But you're not taking human life. And of course, the conservatives, as in most circumstances, tend not to be consistent. In applying kill to a zygote or an embryo, they intend for it to generate the same resistance as it would if you said killing a child or an adult. Therefore, they call for legislation to prevent termination of a zygote or an embryo as well as a fetus. Ironically, though, they tend not to call for gun control to prevent the mass killing by firearms of whole functioning human beings, some of whom may even be pregnant. Such killings can be countered, they, merely, they often say, merely by thoughts and prayers. I wonder why they thought they had to spend taxpayer money on building a wall to keep out people they don't want. All they have to do is use thoughts and prayers if they're effective. You can see how committed, literally, they are to the notion of thoughts and prayers. They're, commissioned, they're committed to the notion of not taxing the wealthy. One would think it's high time to politicize the issue. The unborn child is a phrase virtually universal among abortion opponents, and it mischaracterizes the situation entirely, and of course deliberately. No one argues that a child is an adult. There's no more reason to say that a fetus is a child, nor that an embryo is a fetus, nor that a zygote is an embryo, let alone a child. <coughs> Excuse me, there are differences. Children, adults, and adults are fully functioning whole human beings. Zygotes and embryos are not, nor is a fetus, especially early in the pregnancy. The uh, we're often led astray by emphasis on fetal heartbeat. Oh, once you hear a fetal heart, oh, that's a beating heart, and so forth. We tend to romanticize the heart. But the important developmental phase is not the heart. Every living animal, with very rare exceptions, has a heart. 
If hearts are important, we should give triple rights to an octopus. An octopus has three hearts. It's the brain and nervous system that make people human, not the heart. The question of life is also designated or designed to close out any argument. There's no question that life exists in the womb. Of course it does. But it exists throughout the body. A banana slug is alive. So is a penicillin mold or a growing turnip. And no one suggests they should have rights of human beings. And it's erroneous to conclude that life implies human life or that even human life means the same thing when applied to a zygote or adult or to a child. It's more a matter of definition than a biology. The point at which a developing fetus becomes capable of functioning as a whole human being outside the womb depends upon the brain and nervous system and certainly is late in pregnancy, close to birth. Consider the other end of the human life cycle. When a human being's brain ceases to function, when there's no more cognition and sentience is absent, that human being may be taken off life support, even though obviously there had been a whole functioning human being there previously, and that human being no longer is uh, entitled to the full rights of human beings since they have lost the characteristics that make them human. The person remains human biologically, but only biological, not in the sense of function or sentience. Similarly misleading, as I've said, is the question of fetal heartbeat. Anti-abortionists make dubious assertions that fetal heartbeat takes place quite early in a pregnancy. Even if that were true, they find fetal heartbeats before there are hearts. It requires sophisticated instrumentation but you can detect minor electrical flutters. They are not heartbeats, but even if they were, romanticizing the heart is mistaken. Romantic love, for example, clearly relates to the brain, or maybe to some other part of the anatomy. I once heard that uh, God gave men both a brain and a penis but only enough blood to operate one at a time. And a beating heart is certainly not exclusive to human life. Nor are stem cells from human beings, tiny little humans, as I've heard them described in some ideologues have fantasized. Some years ago, arguments swirled around the rights of stem cells early in the 21st century. And Republican Senator John Danforth, who's both a clergyman and a lawyer, and who, despite his benign reputation, is a strong partisan. Remember, he's the one who gave us Clarence Thomas. He pointed out the absurdity of the argument. He says, if fire personnel rush into a burning building and they find a, a human being in need and a dish of stem, stem cells and they can only save one or the other, which one would they save? There's no question you save the human being. However, a reporter subsequently asked Missouri Senator, then Missouri Senator Jim Talent, another Republican running for re-election, which one should be rescued? And Talent said, hmm. He apparently wasn't a stupid man, but his response was ridiculous. He said, uh, well, the, uh, the rescuer would, would have to make a moral decision on the spot as to whether to save these stem cells or the person. Now, I can't say that that was the cause of his defeat. But it sure didn't help him get reelected. There's another argument 
that abortion opponents would consider key, that others would not, and it's a matter of judgment. Abortion presents a human life from becoming possible from a given pregnancy. Yes, that's true. It's certainly true, but it's also an argument not only against contraception, but against abstinence. Every time a man and woman are alone together, are they obligated to have sex because not doing so prevents a human life, potential human life from being? Now, what kind of, that's a, a brave new world phenomenon. Aldous Huxley would have appreciated that. Regardless of any merit to any of those arguments, so even if you grant that some of them are valid and they're errant nonsense, but they completely ignore an enormous part, enormously important part of the situation, consideration. Whatever the definition applied to any stage of development, there's a complete lack of concern for the woman involved. You only talk about rights that you fantasize you know, for the zygote or the embryo or the fetus, and you totally ignore any rights of the woman. She's treated as irrelevant, as unimportant, except as a vessel. Women are half of humanity. They are whole functioning human beings and should have control over their own bodies. And they have rights, and those rights certainly are at least equal to any rights anyone can fantasize about an embryo or even a fetus. I do not think men should judge for women. Nor do I think other women should judge for women. I think each woman should decide for herself. And there's another issue that when I wrote the book on abortion, very few people were making this argument. And now you hear it all the time, fortunately. And I'm not saying it came from my book. I'd be happy to think some of it did. But the real issue. An issue that's vital and has almost been has been almost completely ignored until recently is government power. It was not ignored in Kansas on August 2nd. Forbidding abortion empowers government rather than the individual involved to make the decision. Most anti-abortion people are also strongly opposed, they say, to big government. And yet they're willing to invest government's totalitarian powers over a woman because she might become pregnant. Abortion's opponents overlook an inconvenient fact regarding government power, one that could be turned against them. Certainly the government that has the power to prevent abortions under a different kind of authoritarian rule would have the power to require abortions. Look at China if you think it couldn't happen. The other side of the coin is not an imaginative figment. If a government can forbid abortions, that means, of course, that it could require a pregnant woman to give birth. Would it be much different for a government to require fertile females to become pregnant? If it's different, tell me how. The pernicious effect of Texas's Absurd law quickly became apparent. The New York Times, just after Thanksgiving, featured a front-page article, Texas doctors say abortion law complicates risky pregnancies. Even when a pregnancy is so troubled that it will ultimately endanger the pregnant woman's life and the fetus is certain not to survive, 
doctors are forbidden to perform an abortion or even to recommend one unless the threat to the woman's life is immediate. You have to wait until she's about to die before you can save her life. The law's supporters say their goal is to save every embryo, regardless of how the conception came to be. Thus, embryo protection is so overwhelming that it can even disregard child rape. The misogyny, the fanaticism here are so clear that they're painful to contemplate. But And by no means are they confined to men. Women can be equally dogmatic and, le and no less harsh. Take, for example, the comments from one Dr. Ingrid Sculp. SKOP, identified as a San Antonio obstetrician who belongs to a group called the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. In supporting the Texas law, she said that even a girl as young as 9 or 10, impregnated by a father or a brother, could, e could carry a baby to term without health risks. Now, there you have it. She's not alone. Fanaticism rules. And it's up to us to counter it. And that means forget what you've been told about voting for the person and not the party and whatever. It involves straight ticket voting. Make up your mind which party is in favor of personal rights and which party is in favor of destroying democracy and oppressing women and vote accordingly and do get out and vote. Hi, Max. Um, my question is, with the current makeup of the Supreme Court, what do you think is the chance of saving other rulings uh, like the sodomy laws case, gay marriage, um, even contraceptive cases? I'd say with the current makeup of the court, there's absolutely no chance. Um, the solution, therefore, is to change the current makeup of the court. And you do not persuade people by saying we need to pack the court. You need to point out that the court has been packed throughout the decades, and we need to unpack to balance the court. Uh, in the meantime, uh, there are ways to deal with it. Any new le uh, national legislation that's passed can declare that it is not subject to judicial review. Most people don't recognize it, but the Supreme Court, um, the Supreme Court's major power is its ability to review laws and declare them unconstitutional or present, uh, governmental actions and declare them unconstitutional. But the that's the appellate jurisdiction, the, um, the jurisdiction based on the appeal from decisions from lower courts and so on, uh, and the ability to, to rule on the constitutionality of, of a given law. But the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, specifically according to the Constitution, and this is spelled out in Article 3, it's subject to the jurisdiction of Congress and the President, subject to law. So if you, if you don't like the way the court rules on pornography, say you can pass a law saying the court can't rule on pornography. And that law is strictly constitutional. Um, you can, if you, if the Democrats maintain control of the House and and by some uh, merciful <laughs> merciful God will uh, increase uh, representation in the Senate and the House, um, they could pass a voter rights law um, 
they could, uh, which would ban uh, voter suppression and political gerrymandering and so forth. And then uh, preface that law with um, the statement that this law is not subject to judicial review, um, which I think should be done in the meantime. I need to make an announcement. You, when you're asking questions, you need to come up to this microphone so it can be broadcast on YouTube and be heard in the room. And we have a question from John Blevins um, on YouTube. Is there any data available regarding how anti-abortion activists have responded to a problem pregnancy in their own family? <laughs> Not that I know of, but there's all kinds of anecdotal evidence. Um, um, my, uh, I guess it's appropriate to mention this. My wife, Charlene, um, for years did volunteer counseling for Planned Parenthood. And um, um, not in this jurisdiction, but in another jurisdiction, she had a uh, Baptist minister come in with a pregnant um, child. Uh, and he was the father. And uh, he wanted her to have an abortion. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Maddox. I have a question. Uh, I have been hopeful that perhaps Jewish leaders might make some progress on the claim that um, the Jewish religion permits abortion and any laws contrary to that would be discriminatory. What what is there any hope for that? Claim? Um, if the Supreme Court is consistent, yes, but it isn't. Uh, it's it's willing to violate its own rulings and um uh, from one decision to the next, the current majority is is purely transactional. It's um, it's ideological. Uh, when when Justice Barrett said she wanted to make sure that people didn't think that the court was uh, composed of political hacks, uh, I can see why she wanted to do that. But uh, she and the others have made it clear that the court is composed of political hacks. Uh, those appointed. Um, by Republican presidents have been political extremists. Clarence Thomas, uh, Samuel Alito, uh, Kavanaugh, uh, Gorsuch, even the uh, the chief, uh, John Roberts, and of course, Clarence Thomas. I would love to see the court um, with added seats, and I would, I know uh, this isn't going to happen, but I would love it if Anita Hill were one of the new members. Uh, great presentation. Thank, well, thank you. you. Thank Clearly, you. have done a lot of work on this and thought. Appreciate it. Um, in in trying to understand and explain the the current uh, anti-abortion movement, you pointed to uh, the historical development of women playing a more active role in public life and the misogynistic reaction to that um, abortion being a manifestation of that. Uh, what what uh, what I'm wondering about is how how do you contrast America's experience with the anti-abortion discussion with those in other countries, particularly more recently in Mexico and in Ireland and other places where uh, historically misogynistic uh, cultures have uh, done away with restrictions on abortion substantially, uh, but the United States seems to be going in the opposite direction. So. Um, those countries also have experienced women being more active in public life. Why the difference? Uh, the United States has the most aggressive uh, anti-abortion movement in the world, and it, it largely is is a function of um, conservative politics 
and the role of the Catholic Church, and it's having seduced fundamentalist evangelical Protestants uh, to be their, their um, I'm thinking of um, uh, the monkey pulling chestnuts out of the fire, um, their um, monkey's paw. <laughs> um, their, the conservative movement is so powerful and so wealthy in the United States uh, that it is now influencing the world as well. But it's gone the other direction, too. Um, Poland recently moved to um, uh, become anti-abortion. And, and there's only one country that I know of that uh, there's a few others, but Canada now is totally free from any restriction on abortion and all the dire promises and projections and predictions uh, have come to naught. Uh, it's fine. There's no problem. Uh, but sometimes things we don't even think of are relevant. Uh, in the mid-19th century, one of the developments that uh, helped free women from the home was the development of the post office. The post office has played an enormously important role in American history that almost always is overlooked. And this was before delivery of mail. You had to go to the post office to collect mail. And women began leaving the house to go collect their mail. And post offices uh, at times made some effort to um, to prevent women and men from mingling together. but that quickly um, dissolved because they couldn't do it. And the whole idea of women leaving the home, uh, even to collect mail, uh, was such a radical development. And we think of it as, as nothing today, but uh, at that time it was a complete uh, cultural shock. And it helped to uh, encourage the anti-abortion movement as a misogynistic reaction. So. So uh, even even things that are benign sometimes can have unintended, always can have some unintended consequences. Um, would you please discuss the possibility that the anti-abortion laws could be challenged under the involuntary servitude uh, features of the state and federal constitution? Well, that's a good question. And in fact, I, I should have mentioned that um, that was the uh, major point in my book is that um, the 13th Amendment prohibits slavery or involuntary servitude. And the notion of a government requiring a woman uh, to follow its dictates regarding her reproductive health or her reproduction system um, would seem clearly to be ruled out by the 13th Amendment, involuntary servitude. That's a pretty good definition of slavery when government has control over your own body. Um, and I've the uh, Roe versus Wade, for example, uh, was based on the right to privacy as inferred from the 14th Amendment, which I think was appropriate. But one thing that it didn't do, and I think it should have done, was cite the 13th Amendment also, the prohibition against involuntary servitude. You're absolutely right. I, I think that should be key, and I should have mentioned it in the talk, and I apologize for not having done so. So thank you for bringing it up. Um, do you see any possibility of any retreat um, from the abortion debate by this opposition? Uh, I'm pointing out that the Kansas, Kansas legislature was told by the voters no pretty overwhelmingly, and then came back with uh, another uh, obscene uh, option um, 
Do you see any any way that this is going to diminish over time? Uh, yes, but it'll require federal action. Um, Missouri's been nasty in that regard. Um, in the early 20th century, there was a referendum about concealed carry, and the people voted it down. And a year or two later, the legislation the legislature adopted it anyway. Um, Missouri voters uh, forced a or voted to force an expansion of Medicaid, which only makes sense because it costs the state virtually nothing. It brings in billions and billions of much-needed dollars to the state and provides much-needed health care to its most needy people. Um, and the legislature didn't want to fund it, and the governor didn't want to push it. Eventually, they were forced to do so. But there is that problem. Uh, conservative forces will do everything. And in Kansas, they're going to come back and, and try to um, have more room. Um, Missouri passed a uh, a um, reform law uh, overwhelmingly, and then uh, a year or two later, reforming politics in general. A year or two later, they put a a, um, a counter law, overturning that, but wording it um, in a confusing fashion. And the voters passed that too. So, um, again, you're right. But if you have federal laws, they will supersede state laws. And uh, the junction is, is going to come here in 2022 and 2024. Um, if the Democrats expand their their power in the House and the Senate, it's a long shot. But if they do, and they do have a chance to do that, I think they're going to be forced to maintain uh or to have voter you know, national prohibition of political gerrymandering, as we now do prohibit racial gerrymandering, um, in such a way. And if we do that and insist on it and require every state in the country to uh, have advanced clearance for its election procedures and so forth, um, the will of the people and will prevail. And the will of the people clearly is in favor of, of human rights. Um, but the majority has been. Uh, suppressed by minority opinion and power and rights uh, as a result of the Electoral College um, and and uh, voter suppression and gerrymandering. So uh, the Republicans have become extremely skillful at that. And I grew up as a hard-nosed conservative right-wing Republican. So, <laughs> Good morning, Barbara Fredholm. Uh, my profession is social work, and I have worked with many families where children were born to parents that did not want them, did not have the money to care for them, were perhaps mentally ill. I think we should give some consideration to children that are being forced to be born with families that don't want them and who cannot properly care for them. Thank you. I totally agree. I'd like to ask a little bit about a related issue of birth control. In early years of my marriage, I lived in a state where birth control was illegal, so that I was guilty of violating the law many, many times. When I finally did have a plan for child, I was in the hospital, and I was in a six-bed ward for a while. And the various other people said, you mean you haven't had a you're having your first child and you've been married for three years? However, did you do that? And 
a lot of the problem there were also what the doctors were saying. When I had the doctor come in and see me afterwards and I asked something about birth control, he said, oh, well, you've had a child. There's no way that you're going to get pregnant for you know, some long period of time. So, So I'm wondering how the situation about birth control is fitting in in terms of all the legal kinds of things. Well, the availability of effective contraception is essential uh, for women to have control of, over their reproductive health, for women and men, too, to have control over their reproductive health. And if you listen to Clarence Thomas, he says, well, what we should do now on the court is move to re-examine birth control or contraception. We don't want it. We'll get rid of it. Um he spoke of many things they want to get rid of. One thing he did not mention was Loving versus Virginia, which would uh, obviously be the next to fall, and that's interracial marriage. Uh, but uh, you know, when it affects you, uh, you're, as the late Everett Dirksen used to say, when I began to feel the heat, I began to see the light. Thank you very much for your attention and your participation. Next week's forum is Dr. Marvin Jones of the Kansas City Health Director. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for tuning in to the All Souls Forum. Keep your radio dialed to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio, for your Jazz Afternoon with KC, coming up immediately. Followed by The Boogie Bridge with Jason Vivoni, and then the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. In the meantime, have a great day.